Today we're looking at the story of David and Bathsheba from the Old Testament book of Samuel. A pretty well-known story and we'll read it in a minute. But basically, King David's hanging around on his roof one night, as you do, and he spots the wife of one of his soldiers having a bath. He likes what he sees, sends for her, and ends up getting her pregnant, which isn't a good look. So to cover it up, he ends up arranging for her husband to get killed in battle. Then he waits like a week before marrying her. And so we see lust leads to adultery, leads to murder. So today you're probably expecting to get some good practical tips like, I don't know, don't perv on your neighbor's wife when you should be at work, uh, don't cover up your sins with even worse ones, or uh, stay off your roof because it probably won't end well. Now that may be excellent advice, but I think there's something deeper going on. Something more than just a story warning us about the dangers of lust and adultery. Something that's even more fundamental to how we interact with one another as fellow human beings. So let's see if we can spot this as we read through the chapter. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Now, already we can see a problem, can't we? It's spring, you know, the time that kings would traditionally go off to war, and David's a king, right? But instead of going off to war, he sends the rest of the army out instead. Chucks a sickie so he can spend some quality time on the couch, binging every season of Better Kill Saul or whatever. The point is, he's not doing his job as king. And in fact, this opening verse is full of irony if you know what's happened previously in the book of Samuel. Only a few years back in Israel's history, where Israel decided that they wanted a king just like all the other nations had. They wanted a human king despite the fact that things had been going pretty well with God as their king. He'd rescued them from Egypt, uh, miraculously fed them in the desert, fought their battles for them, and then brought them into the land he promised them. But despite all of this, Israel wanted a king so they could be like everyone else. You know, all the cool nations have a king, we want one too. 1 Samuel chapter 8, we want a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. So do you get the irony with what David's doing in our story today? Here we have Israel's second king, the great King David. And what's he doing? Is he going out before them and fighting their battles? No, he's, well, not quite in Hawaii on holiday, but he's staying at home, making the others do the very thing Israel wanted their king to do. More than that, God warned Israel this would happen. Back when they asked for a king, he warned them what it would really be like. This is the warning he gave. This is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He'll take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves, and he'll give them to his attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. In essence, God says, you want a king to fight for you? What you'll end up with is one who exploits you. One who takes what's yours for his own pleasure, simply because he can. Ominous, right? Let's get back to the story and see how it plays out. And as we read the story, I want you to look out for a word that gets repeated a lot. 
See if you can spot this repeated word as we go along. First one, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Now, this is the Bible's kind of tactful way of saying that she was likely ovulating at the time, so that what happens next isn't particularly surprising. Then she went back home, and the woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I'm pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, his army commander. He said, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Well, you wouldn't need to ask David if you were out doing your job, you know, going out before the people and fighting their battles as king. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And so Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. That's a bit like putting Uriah and Bathsheba up in the honeymoon suite, then sending room service with a bowl of strawberries and a bottle of champagne. You know, Let's make the baby plausibly his, thinks David. But Uriah has other ideas. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all of his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Now, Uriah's devotion to the bro code shames David, who's the one staying at home sleeping with someone else's wife. Uriah's the one who's following the custom of keeping himself holy before battle. You know, a bit like football coaches banning players from sex the night before the big game. Uh, and this is something that David himself used to do. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 21, uh, David said, Indeed, women have been kept from us, as usual, whenever I set out. The men's bodies are holy, even on missions that are not holy, how much more so today. So Uriah's doing the right thing by his men. David, not so much. And so David tries again, this time getting Uriah drunk. Then David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. David's getting desperate, so he resorts to a more sinister cover-up. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is the fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he'll be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. Verse 22, the messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. 
The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab, Don't let this be evil in your sight. Remember that little phrase for later. Don't let this be evil in your sight. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. David's plan has worked and he's off the hook for now. And it also means he's free to pursue his desires. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David sent and had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's ominous, isn't it? David tells Joab, don't let this thing be evil in your sight. But right at the end of the chapter, the narrator says what David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. Although the story appears from David's perspective to be over, this isn't the last word on the matter from God's perspective. We'll get to that in a minute. But did you notice the word that was repeated throughout the chapter? It's the word sent. And it's difficult to footnote in sermons, so I'll just say here that I owe this observation to my current scholarly man crush, Abraham Karivala, uh, despite his preference for bow ties. Uh, But he points out that this word sent or send occurs a dozen times in the chapter. David sent the army out, but he remained behind. David sent someone to find out Bathsheba's name. He sent someone to bring her to him. She sent word that she was pregnant, and David sent Joab to send Uriah back to Jerusalem. Then he sent him back to the battle and sent murderous instructions to Joab. And when the deed had been done, Joab sent back a report, and finally David sent for Bathsheba to become his wife. This is a story of power corrupted. The king who sends and people obey. Using his power for his own gain, abusing it. Just like God warned back in 1 Samuel chapter 8. David's the king. He sends people to bring him what he wants. And since he's the king, he knows he can get away with it. Or so he thinks. Because we only need to read the first few words of the next chapter to see how this is going to play out. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. And the Lord sent. Who's really in charge in all of this? Who's the one who holds the true power in this story? It's not David. It's God. And he's about to send a message to David, his earthly deputy. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. God sends Nathan the prophet to confront David about what he's done. And how does he confront him? He doesn't directly talk to him about his sin. Instead, Nathan approaches his adultery indirectly with a parable about sheep. Works in New Zealand, also worked in ancient Israel. He said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he'd bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, even slept in his arms. It was, it was like a daughter to him. Now a traveller came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveller who'd come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who'd come to him. 
David hasn't spotted that this is a parable and he reacts accordingly. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. At which point Nathan reveals what the story is really about. Nathan said to David, You are the man. And he goes on to God-splain how David has abused his power. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. So why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his sight? And there's that phrase again. God gave him power, and he used it to do evil in God's sight. Yes, this story involves sex, but it's more about the improper use of power, the exploitation of privilege. David used his position as king not for the benefit of others, but for his own pleasure. He saw what belonged to someone else, and he took it for himself. He treated his fellow human beings, the people he was supposed to shepherd as their king, he treated Bathsheba and Uriah as objects. Long before Weinstein and Spacey and Prince Andrew, God called out the abuse of power by the rich and important. God called even the king that he'd appointed to account, confronted him with his sin and the consequences. And the chapter goes on to detail David's punishment in, in quite fitting terms. Uh, God says, you struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, therefore the sword will never depart from your house. You despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. So in your sight, I will take your wives and give them to one who's close to you. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. God's clear message to David and his message to all those who abuse the power with which they've been entrusted. God's message is this. You might think it's been done in secret, but it's still in God's sight. There are consequences, and God will use his power to bring justice. Now, sadly, the subsequent kings of Israel didn't heed the warnings, nor did their priests, their leaders. This was an ongoing problem for Israel. Bad shepherds, exploitative leaders. For centuries, nothing much changed. In fact, we see this shepherding metaphor pop up numerous times to critique Israel's leadership. Uh, famously, a few hundred years after David, in Ezekiel chapter 34, God says, Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? When you eat the curds, you clothe yourselves with the wool and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. And so God says he's going to remove the shepherds from their positions of power, so they can no longer exploit and abuse his people. And in their place, he says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he's with them, so will I look after my sheep. And how God says he'll do that is interesting. He says, I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be the prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Despite his failure, God will raise up a good shepherd from the line of King David. In fact, a descendant of David's son Solomon, born from his sinful marriage to Bathsheba. 
Jesus would be the good shepherd, the one who put an end to the abuse of power by the leaders of God's people. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd doesn't exploit the sheep. He lays down his life for the sheep. And so God doesn't just call out evil and abuse by those in leadership. I mean, anyone can do that. Now, he also turns up himself and shows us how it should be done. As the Apostle Paul put it, although being in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He didn't use his power to serve himself like David did. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This then makes it especially evil when leaders among God's people use and abuse their power. I mean, that's the opposite of the model Jesus has left for us, right? Uh, Because just before those verses I read from Philippians, Paul says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who, being in very nature God, didn't use his power for his own advantage, but became a servant. Or as the Apostle Peter puts it when speaking to Christian leaders, be shepherds of God's flock that's under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Ours should be a community in which power isn't used the way King David did, for his own pleasure, his own enrichment, his own sense of status. So firstly, don't be like David. Don't use whatever power you have for your own sexual pleasure, to take what you want because you can. Treating other people as objects, uh, whether that's the power you might have at work, or as a leader of young people, or even within your marriage. self-sacrifice, other-centeredness. That's the alternative model that Jesus lays down for all of us. And don't exploit your power in other ways. Don't use your position of leadership or privilege to make yourself feel important, uh, to have others treat you with deference or honour, or to enjoy the feeling of influencing or controlling others. Now, this is a temptation we all have to guard against, and I've I've seen some Christian leaders at times get a bit carried away with it, where a person comes to them for help and advice, and of course they give it, but then they keep on giving it, making the other person dependent on their wise advice, rather than helping them develop their own scripture-informed and spirit-filled wisdom. And the leader finds too much joy in their own status as guru, rather than in watching the other person grow into maturity and independence. And it normally doesn't end well for the relationship. Don't lord it over the flock in that way. God removed bad shepherds in the past, and he will do so again, just like he sent Nathan to confront David. Now instead, instead we're to be people who use whatever power or privilege we might have for others. And not in a patronising way, where we still get to decide what's to their benefit, but in a way that genuinely empowers others. And more than that, we're to be a people who give up our power for others, who give up the power to keep things the way we like them, give up the power to get what we want. If that truly characterised the way we treat one another, the church would get far less negative press. 
and it would be the salt and light it was called to be. If that truly characterised the way we went about life in our families, in our workplaces, then people would notice the difference. Parents who exercise their God-given power lovingly and carefully, not using it to have their own needs met, but so that their children would grow in maturity, in responsibility and in Christ-likeness. Co-workers who refuse to play office power games, even if it means missing out on promotions and salary increases. I've had the opportunity this year to try to put this into practice. Sure, I work for a Christian organisation, but sadly that's no guarantee. But the college that I teach at is merging with a smaller college over in Western Australia. Now, you probably know mergers can be pretty ruthless endeavours, and we've pretty much got the power in the relationship. So we've been extra careful to take every little opportunity to choose to do things their way rather than insisting on ours all the time. Now, just to give one small example, there's a person who oversees one particular function in Perth that I'm responsible for in Sydney. Both of us think it's important, but I could tell he was particularly passionate about it. So I surprised him a little by saying, hey, you take the lead on this, and you set the direction for the merged college. Now, it's early days, but there's a surprising degree of harmony and cooperation within the two camps. Uh, our hope is that we can model how Jesus' followers do things differently from the world around us. How we use power for others. How we give up power for others. What are the ways in which you could surprise others, your family, your friends, your work colleagues, by following Jesus' example in how you use your power? What are some of the areas in which you need to repent in how you've used your power to serve yourself rather than others? Well, importantly, the story of David's abuse of power doesn't end where we left it. Because David has the good sense to own up to his sin and repent. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. To which Nathan proclaims God's forgiveness. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. Now, there are still consequences, as we saw earlier. His kingdom and his household would never be the same again. And the son born as a result of his adulterous act would die. Half the kingdom would be taken away from his descendants. But David was forgiven, and he retained his place in God's plan. And the very next child he had with Bathsheba was Solomon, the one through whose line Jesus would one day come. This is where the gospel decisively parts ways with contemporary theories of power and identity. So listen carefully. Because when our world calls out exploitation and abuse of power, it's usually pretty judgmental and unforgiving. Judgmental in that it's passing judgment on someone else, often quite deservedly, but still, it's all about finger-pointing at others. And it's also unforgiving in that once someone is called out, it seems to offer them no way back. Sure, this story about David encourages us to call out exploitation and abuse wherever we see it, knowing that it's evil not just in our own sight, but in the sight of God. Yet it encourages us to pass judgment first and foremost among ourselves before we start pointing the finger elsewhere. To start with God's people before worrying about the rest of humanity. To start with me before I concern myself with you. And it also offers forgiveness. It offers a way back. We don't have to remain cancelled. Yes, like David, there are still consequences for our sin. There is still pain in involved in owning up to it. But our sin doesn't have to have the final word 
thanks to the Good Shepherd, the one who laid down his life for his sinful, corruptible, yet repentant sheep.